Hello and welcome to the She Reads Truth podcast, where we open our Bibles and talk about the beauty, goodness, and truth we find there. I'm your host, Amanda Bible Williams. And I'm your other host, Rachel Myers. And y'all, it is week two of This is the Old Testament. Y'all, this study is a little bit different than a lot of the studies that we do, but I want you to, I mean, we'll explain it a little bit at the start of this episode. This is so fun. Today we are joined by David Filson. You probably don't recognize his name, but you're going to love him by the end of this episode. David is a lot of things. He is a head of theology at a local school, pastor for theology at a local church, and he's an adjunct professor of apologetics at Westminster Theological Seminary in Philadelphia. David is also a friend And y'all, I just want you to know that you are going to feel like his friend as well as you listen to Amanda and I chat with him about the next five books of the Old Testament. You are going to find that it's a little bit more of an academic, a little headier conversation, but the kind that you'll probably just want to listen to a couple of times and take a ton of notes because there's so much to learn. And when I say that, I mean, Amanda and I learned so much. I have gone on enough. Let's get right to it. Well, I was gone last week. Um, Welcome back. And it was so fun to get to listen to your conversation with Jessica and Tara Lee. I feel like I need to give Jessica the co-host seat more often. I hope we did you proud. Well, listen, and we had great guests. And this week, David, we're so glad you're here. I'm so glad to be here. This is a treat. David, you've got a lot of words read in your lifetime and a lot of study and a lot of prayer. And so like getting to sit down with you and talk about these five books of the Old Testament feels like such a big treat. Oh, it's a treat to me to be here. It really is. Well, listen, thanks for coming. I I want our listeners, maybe if you didn't listen to last week's episode, or even if you did, I want to take a quick minute just to remind you kind of what we're doing with this series, because it's a little different than most series that we do. Most often we'll do full books of the Bible, right? Yeah. Or we'll study a topic. And I'm excited to revisit the why of this plan because you weren't here to talk about the why of the plan last week. I know. And And I'm so excited about the why. Yeah. The truth is that, Rachel, this is a reading plan that has been a seed in your heart for a long time. It has. And then became an actual plan that you wanted to do and fight for. So tell us why. And I love it when we have plans like that. Like this is one that probably, you know, when we come to editorial calendar pitch meetings, um, this is one that I've probably brought to maybe ultimately three. So three years in a row, just like, hey, what if we did this? And genuinely, it's a like, yes, but it doesn't fit this year. For whatever reason, this was the year to finally, for it to get to be a yes and let's do it. Mm -hmm. Um, So I'm excited to get to, if any of you have a She Reads Truth Bible or a He Reads Truth Bible, you'll actually recognize the work that we did here. And so this this study series is an expansion of what we did in the She Reads Truth Bible, where we selected a key verse from each book of the Bible. wasn't the most memorable, most famous. It's the book that We didn't vote on them by popularity. Not by popularity, anyway. (laughs) I mean, it was a lot of meetings, but it's the verse in each book of the Bible that tells what's happening Mm -hmm. in that verse. So you guys learned that last week. But one of the really neat things about this is that then if you read that string of 66 verses or passages, you're actually kind of reciting the arc of the redemption story, which is pretty cool. And you're getting this. It's not exactly a Bible survey because we're not hitting every high and low point of scripture or talking about every story character, but we're saying what the story is saying. Yeah. It's great. Yeah, yeah. It's the 10,000 foot view. Yeah. But it's so important to get that foundation and that framework. It's like my kids have done in their one, you know, brief and 
glorious year of homeschooling. <laughs> Raise your <laughs> hand if you've had one brief. I don't know one, glorious it was a brief, everyone. actually, or glorious. Yeah. It was, you went out uh, in a blaze of glory, right? It was kind <laughs> of the worst. It was a yeah. bit of a crash and burn. However, they, um, and this was no one's fault, everything's fine. They memorized a lot. The boys, my boys, they're 11, they did a lot of memory work. They did, mm-hmm. dedicated most of this school year to memory work. And because the theory is that that is scaffolding, that just knowing mm-hmm. the stories, right. knowing the facts, provides scaffolding that then you can continue to build on mm-hmm. as you continue to learn mm-hmm. and grow. And so, and that's kind of what these verses do for me. And that's what our I hope like is. thinking of these as scaffolding. I mm-hmm. think that's cool. I don't know if you were suggesting necessarily that we say these are scaffolding, but I mean, that I think it's works. fair. I think yeah. it works. We'll yeah. figure if it doesn't work, we'll figure it out as we go and it starts to break down. Well, listen, it'll be fine. I like it. Okay, so we last week dropped off, we covered the whole Pentateuch, which whenever I hear Pentateuch, I now remember when Oliver, our oldest, was like eight, maybe. He happened to be in the room when I was talking to my husband, Ryan, and I was like, I feel like it was like conversationally quizzing. Like I was like, what are the first five books of the Old Testament called? And Ollie lifts his head up and goes, the Pentatonics. Nice. <laughs> close. Very close. Uh, but anyway, so the Pentateuch, that would be the first five <laughs> books of the Bible written by, we believe, Moses. Right. And so we start now in the book of Joshua and kind of the first moment in the book of Joshua is Moses is dead. Moses is dead. Yeah. 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 I wonder, David, if you could, so transitioning from the end of Deuteronomy, Moses has died and we're transitioning into Joshua. We're transitioning genres mm-hmm. and we're now stepping into the historical books. Can you kind of set that up for us, like frame that transition for us a little bit? Yeah, I think the transition has to do with mediatorship, if I can say it that way. Uh, I like mediation. That. Yeah, okay. Yeah, because if the Pentateuch is, and you mentioned genre, which I feel so sophisticated saying genre. Genre. So, mm-hmm. <laughs> kind of French. You know, yeah. genre, it sounds, it sounds, French, it sounds it? French, yeah. right? Yeah, there you go. But, you know, the Pentateuch, people will think, well, that's historical because it, right. it recounts historical events. It does, but it is a, a unique genre, much the way the Gospels yeah. recount historical material, but they're a unique genre. That's right. All right. And so the transition is not just literary from, you know, one genre to another, but theologically, it is a transition that focuses on the preservation of the seed motif for the sake of mediation. Then all throughout the book of Genesis, you have this preservation of the seed motif that you see in Genesis 3.15. The seed will crush the serpent's head. So it's all about that that idea of mediation and the seed being preserved through that. And then, of course, you know, Exodus is the rescue of the covenant people. You know, if you can think of the way they're taken out of Egypt and all of the grace that is bestowed upon them, Leviticus is a law for the covenant people. Numbers, you might think of as a rebuke of a covenant people. And Deuteronomy, right, which is sometimes when people decide, I'm going to read straight through the Bible, Deuteronomy is when they sometimes just tap out and say, I, yeah. can't, I can't do this. But Deuteronomy, of course, is really important because God's showing them the grace that, okay, you've rebelled against my law, mm-hmm. but I'm hanging in there with you, and here's a reminder of my law. Of course, the issue is by the time you get to the end of Pentateuch, Moses has died. And that's what the Lord says to Joshua in chapter 1. Moses, my servant, is dead. Now you are going to take these people to inherit the land I swore to their forefathers all the way back, Genesis 12 to 17. The promise I made to Abraham, in fact, I changed his name from Avram to Avraim. I'm still committed to that promise, and you're my guy. And so Moses was a mediator for the people of God. Joshua is going to take up that mediatorial role. And that's, you know, the rest of Joshua is 
historically, literarily, and theologically, it is a transition from the Pentateuch to the historical books. Oh, that's so helpful. I hadn't thought yeah. of it in that context, yeah. but yeah. And so we get in Joshua, which we studied over Lent. Um, we read the whole book of Joshua together just a few mm-hmm. months ago, mm-hmm. which if you happened to miss that first episode in the Lent series with Christine Kane, go back and listen to her talk about Joshua chapter one alone, which was just so fun mm-hmm. and so cool. But in this context, we're approaching Joshua from a different perspective. We're asking, mm-hmm. how does it fit in scripture, which yeah. you're so helpful kind of helping us place that. And then also just kind of what's happening in this book specifically. Yeah. Mm -hmm. In the part that we get to read in this, this is our day eight reading for Joshua. We read from Joshua chapter one. We read all of Joshua chapter Mm -hmm. one. Yeah. And there are so many promises Mm -hmm. in that little section of scripture. And of course, there's even a promise in the key verse, which is verse nine, haven't I commanded you be strong and courageous. Do not be afraid or discouraged for the Lord your God is with you wherever you go. And then there is, of course, the Israelites' response, the people's response to what Joshua has asked of them. And they're like, yes, we're all in. We're going to do all of that Mm -hmm. that you just said. Mm -hmm. So there are promises coming from both directions, and we know how that pans out, right? right? Mm -hmm. And so there's you know, something I remember us talking about with Chris, and we've revisited a few times, is this partnership element. Like there's a line in our study book summary for Joshua that says, God gave Israel victories, but each victory required a step of faith. And so Mm -hmm. it's this like partnership element. I wonder if you could help us expound on that a little bit, David, where, because we see here, I've given you every place the sole of your foot treads, be strong and courageous, carefully observe the whole instruction Mm -hmm. that Moses commanded you Mm -hmm. in all of this. But at the same time that God is saying, I will do this. I will establish. I will give. Right. And there's some kind of somehow that fits together. God's promise and our response, our responsibility. Yeah. yeah. To that. Yeah, I mean, this is a theme throughout all of Scripture. I mean, you see it in the Pentateuch where right. mm-hmm. the people of God are to be obedient there, to yep. respond in, in faith, and and you see it here. I mean, in Judges, of course, it's just this cycle yeah. of. Disobedience, repentance, disobedience, repentance, and and so forth. And their enthusiastic response, of course, is well intended, much like Peter's response to Jesus was well intended when he said, we'll go to Jerusalem with you and we'll die with you. And of course, Jesus says, oh, really, will you? Mm -hmm. You'll have denied me three times before the rooster crows, Mm -hmm. right? And of course, Peter did. I mean, he... And do you know him? No. Do you know him? No. Do you know him? No. And the cock-a-doodle-doo, cock-a-doodle-did. And, and so really the whole of the Bible is this idea of, yes, we are called to faithfulness. Mm-hmm. That is to be our response, and our faithfulness is only going to be by grace. But even in the midst of our faithlessness, God remains faithful. The ultimate promiser here in chapter 1, and this is an important thing because we can read chapter 1 and we say, okay, go out and just dare to be a Joshua. Be strong and courageous. The message of Christianity is be strong and courageous. Keep your promises. Stay in the game, right? The problem is, what about when I'm not strong and courageous? Right. What about when I'm not able to stay in the game? What yeah. then? Is it all blown apart? And so in reality, yeah. what you are seeing God say here is, I've made a promise. I'm going to keep it, and I'm going to keep it through your faithfulness, Joshua, 
and even in spite of your faithlessness at times, because Joshua didn't do everything perfectly, right? Mm-hmm. The people of God didn't do everything perfectly. And so what Joshua does then is he points to the true, strong, and courageous one, mm-hmm. That's right. the one who alone fully kept the law of God. Mm-hmm. You know, he says to Joshua, do not let this book of the law depart from your mouth and meditate on it day and night. Mm-hmm. You are to be careful, he says, to obey everything written in the law. Mm-hmm. Well, of course, there's only one mediator who carefully obeyed every last thing written in the law. And he did that for us. He did that because even Joshua, as grand a figure as he is, couldn't do it. Mm -hmm. The people of God, Israel, they were to embody, right, that obedience to the law, but only Jesus, the true, strong, and courageous mediator, could do that. And I mean, that's why Jesus, you know, even says in John 15, I am the true vine, And what he's saying there is the prophecy of Isaiah, the people of God were to be a life-giving vine to the nations, but they refused. They flaked out. And Jesus is saying, I am the true Israel. I am the embodiment of everything Mm. that Israel was to be in obedience in order to enter the promised land. Now that I have obeyed the law fully, I will take you into the promised land. And so the land of Canaan, the physical land of Canaan, was, a, of course, a type looking forward to the reality of ultimately the new heaven and new earth. And it was Jesus who is the true, faithful, and courageous mediator there. So, Joshua, I think that's why it's so important there in chapter 1, what God is saying. Uh, and, and he has to say to him, be strong and courageous. What, three times? Be strong and courageous. Have I not told you be strong and courageous, yeah. right? Because what is ahead of them is the dismantling of paganism, which began in the garden. Mm-hmm. You know, I'll be my own God. I'll be my own determiner of what is true and false, right and wrong. Mm -hmm. So now paganism is established in all kinds of institutional ways in the land of Canaan. And so Joshua is going to have to go in. They're not just taking a plot of real estate. They are going in fighting the spiritual warfare of dismantling paganism in the land and establishing what we might say the orthodox worship of Yevah of Yahweh. Mm-hmm. So it's a big task in front of him. That's so good. And like, not only are we getting this like prefiguring of Christ, mm-hmm. like true and better Joshua, yeah. but also in this key verse, it's there's this theme of the presence of God that I'm with you wherever you go, which started with God walking you know, with Adam and Eve in the garden. The presence of God is a theme of all of Scripture, not just of this key verse or not just of Joshua, where we have Emmanuel, God with us, right? Yeah, Yeah, that's exactly right. He doesn't peace out on us, Mm -mm. right? He doesn't peace out us in the garden. Mm -hmm. He didn't peace out on Abraham, even though Abraham did all kinds of really questionable things. He doesn't peace out on Moses, who did questionable things. I mean, the reality, the presence of God, I mean, that's so good because there, I'll be with you wherever you go, is nothing new for God. Right. God's saying to Joshua, I've been at this a long time with my people, Mm -hmm. being with them wherever they go. The reality, I mean, really, the whole of the Bible from Genesis straight through to the maps, I mean, the whole of Scripture (laughs) is God's commitment to covenantal intimacy, covenantal presence with his people. I think in some ways the Bible's like a tale of trees and temples. You know, the garden was a temple. It was a temple structure. It's sacramental elements there. You had the tree, you had various elements in the garden that made it a temple-like setting, God dwelling with Adam and Eve in covenantal relationship. Of course, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, where we blew it, Mm -hmm. and then Adam and Eve are taken out, not for punishment, but for protection. Mm -hmm. Because God says, now lest they take and eat of the tree of life and live forever, let's get them out of here, right? The tree of life, which had been a confirming tree, confirming them forever in their lost rebellious state, and they're taken out. Of course, cherubim are placed there 
at the entrance with a flaming sword. And you think, okay, the whole temple idea, God dwelling with his people, it's over. But after that, God's still committed to it, being with his people in present, right, temple right. intimacy through the tabernacle in the wilderness. I'm sure you talked about that in, mm-hmm. in the Pentateuch. You know, the temple itself, the second temple of intertestamental period, Jesus, you know, day mm-hmm. when he was on earth, second temple period. I mean, Jesus is the temple, John 2. You and I as temples of the Holy Spirit, even the new heaven and new earth yeah. is a temple setting. So he's committed all through that temple presence, you know, dwelling. I mean, even Jesus himself, right? John 1, 11 through 14, he, Eskinison, he tented, he pitched his tent among us, he tabernacled among us. And God's commitment there is seen through all these books. And Joshua is no, I mean, it's no exception. I mean, the purpose of Joshua going into the land of Canaan was to establish ultimately not just takeover of real estate, Mm -hmm. but a place for the temple, for God dwelling with his people. And I mean, I just think there's so many beautiful things there. Even even the idea of placing, you know, cherubim at the east entrance. You look at Exodus 26.1, cherubim were sewn into the curtain, keeping Mm. the people from the Holy of Holies. You look at... Matthew twenty seven fifty six. when Jesus died, the temple curtains fall, right? With them fall those cherubim. The way is now open mm. into the Holy of Holies. You think, okay, well, you got the tree of the knowledge of good and evil and the tree of life, but it's that cursed tree, mm-hmm. right, that this mediator is going to die on to pay yeah. for our sins at the first tree so that we can, as you look at Revelation 19 and following, have access yet again in the final temple to the tree of life, where we'll be confirmed forever in our glorified state. And Joshua's crucial. The historical books are crucial because they uniquely kind of guard, kind of cocoon this seed motif so that all of that is kept in place. The trees, the temple, you know, yeah, it's the presence of God with his people. Yeah. It's so beautiful. It just, what I love about the Old Testament or what I love about reading the Old Testament and continuing to read it over time and these layers of understanding, you know, are very thin for me at first with the Old Testament, you know, but then it starts to kind of make sense and dots start to connect and conversations like this that help us see, you know, from a higher level kind of looking down and seeing how all the pieces connect Mm -hmm. because the gospel in the New Testament is beautiful, right? But as we start to, as you make, I mean, you just sat there and rattled off more connections than I can count I know. <laughs> between Jesus and what we're seeing in these books in the Old Testament. And it just, it's like it goes from, for me, and this is, words fall short, but like it goes from beautiful to like radiant. It's mm. like it adds like glistens of, yeah. of light, you know, because just things they've never seen before or never noticed. It's like a diamond with a lot of facets. A lot of facets. Right? Yeah. And yeah. it's just the deeper you dig the richer it is and the more, you know, you just keep finding stuff. You'll never reach the bottom of it. I mean, you no. keep digging. Yeah. You'll never cease discovering new facets, new hues, new colors refracted. Yeah. And, and that's because it is much to the chagrin of higher critical scholars of the Bible, not a disparate collection of disconnected books written by a bunch of goat herders. <laughs> that There is an infinite trajectory of connections, organic connections from beginning to end, because it is the word of an infinitely holy triune God. And so I think we sometimes read the Bible atomistically, meaning we 
sort of pull out bits and pieces here, and we don't see the internal connections. But of course, Jesus did, right? Luke 24 opens the law and the prophets, which is a synecdoche, a part for the whole. The whole of the Old Testament's all about me, right? I'm the beginning and the end of it. In fact, when he says, you know, in Revelation 1 7, I'm the Alpha Omega, he is saying, I am the thread that holds the whole Bible together, and every page either shouts or whispers my name. And to see those connecting points is truly, truly life giving. And Joshua is full of it. Yeah, I mean, it's just full of those connected. But the Old Testament is, is full of that. If we don't read the Old Testament through a Christ-centered lens, we are not reading the Old Testament the way Christ read the Old Testament and the way he preached and the apostles mm-hmm. preached the Old Testament. Mm-hmm. Of course, I'm sure you, you talk about biblical theology or redemptive mm-hmm. historical hermeneutics. Hermeneutics is not a skin rash. It's the art and science of biblical interpretation, Right. To see things through the lens of Christ, mm-hmm. the diamond with all the facets, many yeah. facets, but still the same diamond. Right. You know, at home right now, if you were to come to our house right now, rather than offering you something to drink, I'd have to offer you a Zyrtec, especially. Right. Uh, Rachel, Listen. especially you. Still, my daughter, still in recovery. <laughs> my daughter was just in the, uh, the, the high school musical at CPA, Adam's family, and she played Morticia. Well, she got all kinds of love after the show was over. And so many people brought flowers in our house oh, right funny. now is just full of roses and flower arrangements. And, I mean, it was just you can't walk for all of the floral arrangements that are in there. So think of it this way. <laughs> if, you, if you go and you buy a rose and you want that rose to last, you might buy it when it's still kind of closed up in bud form. Then you put it in water, and over the next few days, that rose begins to open up, and more detail is revealed about that rose a week later, it's fully open and revealing all of its beauty. It's the same rose that it was when it was in bud form. And so what you're talking about there, Amanda, is things that are in bud form, doctrines, truths, beautiful truths about Christ, about the Trinity, about God's plan of redemption, about the covenant, on and on and on, God's presence with us. Those things are in bud form. And then as you turn the pages, as you turn the pages, you're just pulling petals back and more and more is being revealed, you know, which is why the seed... In Genesis 3.15, tiny little seed, not much is known, not much is revealed in a little seed. By the time you get to Revelation 1.7, the Alpha and the Omega, mm-hmm. I'm everything, Yeah. Mm-hmm. right? And everything in between is an unfolding of that of that rose so you can see more detail. Man, I you're just so much fun to have here because I feel like, I mean, like, I mean, we prayed before we hit record, like, Lord, reveal new things to us even in this time. And I just feel like I'm learning. I'm loving this. I finally just stopped taking notes because I'm like, I'm just going to have to go back and listen. Yeah. Maybe I should stop talking so much. No, Maybe I no more. Please but the talking. Bible, look, what yeah. is more, what is more life-giving? What is more scintillating and stimulating than the eternal word, the eternal God? Yeah. I mean... It really should just mesmerize us, mm-hmm. yeah. which is what y'all do. It's what y'all do here, mm-hmm. getting people mesmerized with the Bible. Yeah, you know? we hope so. I mean, that's what we want. But so we're coming up on a good. Um, so Joshua, you're right, and I think we spent Lent discovering that what you just said is true. That we can see Jesus all through mm-hmm. Joshua, mm-hmm. yeah, and the book of Joshua. Yeah. But then we turn the page to Judges, mm-hmm. <laughs> and <laughs> and it's a different kind of book. Yeah, it's kind of the same story over and over and over mm-hmm. in one book, mm-hmm. and that cycle of Israel's sin, God's judgment, God's deliverance, Israel's sin, God's yeah. judgment, God's mm-hmm. deliverance, and it's a dark. I mean, it just like at first read, it's a dark book. It is a dark book. 
And so, you know, we want, I want to see scripture as the unfolding rose, you know, that gets more beautiful mm-hmm. the more we dig in and discover it. But I think some of us might have a harder time with a book like Judges, mm-hmm. right. right? Although we had a tough parts of Joshua. Sure. Oh, yeah. 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 And and the thing about, I mean, again, with, you know, it seems to be our theme right now with Joshua, Moses had just died, you know, mm-hmm. and Judges, Joshua has just died mm-hmm. and we're starting fresh. In the key verse, even, you know, to your point, Amanda says, it's Judges twenty one twenty five. It says, in those days, there was no king in Israel. Everyone did whatever seemed right to him, which doesn't feel... Sounds off. like a great plan. It sounds familiar, I guess. <laughs> yeah, um, it does. It does. Uh, yeah. But our theme here, David, in Judges, Judges is this cycle of sin, right? Right. And I mean, if our goal in this study is to be able to identify, you know, these key verses and for them to trigger a memory or an understanding of what's happening in the books, when we read that key verse that there was no king in Israel and everyone did what seemed right to him, like what should that trigger for us? There are a number of things. I think maybe one thing that it is to trigger is that what's going on in Judges is writ large what went on in Genesis 3. Okay. Because Adam and Eve were told by the serpent, you know, has God really said? Yeah. Mm -hmm. Has God really said you can't eat of every tree? In other words, the implication is God's not good or he wouldn't be holding out on you. He wouldn't even hold out one tree from you. Are you telling me he's holding out on you? Has he really said you can't eat? And then, of course... Eve has already bought into the lie that God is not good by saying, yeah, we can't eat of it, we can't even touch it, because the day we do, we'll surely die. And then, of course, the serpent says, oh, God's a liar. He's not good, and he's a liar. You will not die. In fact, not only is he not good, he's a liar. He's quite insecure. He don't want any competition. He knows the day that you eat of it, your eyes will be open, and you will be as God, knowing good from evil. So, of course, we know how it goes. I mean, they they take and eat the fruit, and the text says their eyes were opened. Mm -hmm. But what did they see? What pathetic excuses for gods they turned out to be. Mm-hmm. What the Hebrew there is actually saying in Genesis 3 is, you'll be your own God determining for yourself hmm. what is good and evil, determining for yourself what is right and wrong. You'll be your own arbiter of epistemic truth. You'll be your own epistemological starting point. You'll be your own basis for knowing, your own authority for knowing, and thereby you'll also be your own arbiter of ethics, hmm. what is right and wrong. So you fast forward, right, to, and in one sense, Adam and Eve decided we are going to kick the king out of the garden, mm-hmm. right? No place for you here. And of course, the king was like, yeah, this is my garden. I'm going to take you out for now. And the rest of the Bible is going to be me preparing my people to come back in the presence of this garden temple, which is going to be a garden city temple in the presence of the king. But as Tolkien says, the hands of the king are healing hands, right? And so hmm. the rest of the Bible is proof of that. But judges is, judges is dark, and you don't find so much of the healing hands there. And I think the purpose of Judges is to remind us writ large what the results of us trying to be our own king, trying to be our own gods, trying to determine for ourselves what is right and wrong. Of course, no king in Israel, step one, no king in Israel. Hmm. And everybody did what was right in their own eyes. Their eyes were opened. You know, yeah. They wanted their eyes to be open so that they could determine for themselves what was right and wrong. And, and so I think what happens then is judges, if we want to read it Christologically, what you see in judges is God having to remind his people over and again that with sin comes judgment, right? And so that is written so large in the book of Judges yeah. that it prepares us for the king who would come, who truly knew what right and wrong was, truly lived out 
righteousness and himself as king bore the judgment for his people. So by the time you get, you know, say to Luke 24, I mentioned Luke 24 a minute ago. You remember when he was with those two disciples, Psalms and the prophets all about me, the law and the prophets all about me. And then he's about to leave and they say, hey, come have dinner with us. And he does. And it says that he commands Boy them. Way to be at that dinner table. Oh, man. Think about this. Right? Think about this. So he bids them eat. He tells them, the king tells them, it's time to eat. I am giving you permission. I am bidding you come and eat. And they ate. And then it says in Luke 24, their eyes were open. And what did they see? There is a king and he's right across the table from us. There is yeah. a God and it's not us. He's right across it. The, their eyes were open, Luke says, and they recognized him. So what you have here from Genesis 3 their eyes are open. They recognize what pathetic excuses of God's they turned out to be. Judges is that on a large scale. Yeah. Everybody yeah. trying to be their own gods. And then being reminded with sin comes judgment. So by the time you get to Christ, the judged king becomes the one recognized as he bids them eat. Hmm. Whereas originally Adam and Eve were told not to eat. Now these two disciples are told, now it's time to eat. And their eyes are open and they saw Jesus for who he is. And I think what you see in Judges is what happens when there is the absence of the king. Yes. And there's just a cacophony. Yeah. Right? A cacophony of suffering and disobedience and God teaching his people through judgment, you know? Yeah. Yeah. And we have toward the beginning of the book in Judges chapter two, it's interesting that you were talking about seeing, like mm. seeing the king, because mm. we get this bit that, you know, in verse seven it says, the people this is in verse 7. The people worshiped the Lord throughout Joshua's lifetime, and during the lifetimes of the elders who outlived Joshua, they had seen all the Lord's great works that he had done for Israel. But then Joshua dies, and those who, after Joshua is dead, and those who lived with Joshua are dead, and so now there's no one left, mm-hmm. right, who was, that whole generation is gone. And in verse 10, after them, another generation rose up who did not know the Lord or the works he had done for Israel. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I want my prayer to be, Lord, let me see you. Mm-hmm. Because when we see him for who he is, that is like step one, yeah. <laughs> you know, mm-hmm. of then choosing a response that is congruent with who he is. Mm-hmm. Like, so if he is who he says he is mm-hmm. and who I know him to be, then that changes how I respond to him. And so if I don't see him, if he's out of sight, out of mind, and I'm forgetting, you know, when we studied judges as a community, oh, it's been a while now. It has. Um, Many years. Yeah, Yeah. a couple years. Mm -hmm. The subtitle we chose for the book was The Tragedy of Forgetting God. Is that what we chose? Is that right? Mm -hmm. And so that's a lot of, I think, what we see here is just like forgetting God and making ourselves into God. Here's the thing. It's not that when we forget God... There is no God. That's right. When we forget God, we replace God with a God created in our own image. That's right. You know, John Calvin, who lived from 1509 to 64, in his commentary in Acts chapter 2, said that man is fabricum idolorum, an idol fabricator. And so what happened in the garden, what's happening in Judges, we're trying to you know, sort of juke God out mm-hmm. so that we can establish an idol, a God created strangely in our own image. Yeah, so that's why when you read the right. Old Testament, just do a simple concordance, an English concordance study on this. One of the most oft-repeated commands of God in the Old Testament is remember. 
Mm-hmm. Remember, remember, remember. You see it in the Pentateuch. You see it in the historical books. You see it in the poetic books. You see it in the prophets, mm-hmm. right? What is Hosea 4? where he says, my people perish for lack of knowledge, like people, like priests. The priests have stopped feeding my people the knowledge of me and my wondrous works, and truth lies fallen in the street now, right? There's just bloodshed in the street, et cetera. But the beautiful thing about that verse there, right? They, a whole generation rose up who did not know Yahweh and the works that he had done for his people. When you get to the promise of the new covenant in Jeremiah 31, one of the aspects of that promise that Jeremiah gives is that there will come a time where there will be no need for a man to teach his neighbor. The whole generation will know, right? Because the scripture says the knowledge of the Lord is going to cover the earth as the water does the sea. But what it's going to take, though, go down just a couple of verses from where you were there to verse 14. Yeah. This is what it's going to cost. The Lord's anger burned against Israel, and he handed them over to marauders who raided them. He sold them to the enemies around them, and they could no longer resist their enemies. Okay? It's a bleak situation. Was that an end in and of itself? No. Because the true Israel, of course, the true embodiment of Israel is Jesus Christ himself. He was handed over to marauders. Isaiah 52, 13 to 53, 12. Hmm. Like a sheep before it shears is silent, Mm -hmm. so he opened not his mouth. He was handed over to, as it were, marauders to be raided. He was sold, as it were, even as the guards gambled for his seamless garment, Mm -hmm. and he could no longer resist his enemies again. And the glorious thing, but we should tremble when we think of it, is that as you read this, he could no longer resist those who had turned against him. It was ultimately his father who turned against him. Isaiah 53.10, it pleased the Lord to bruise him. He has mm-hmm. put him to grief. So even that verse there, verse 14, which seems just like a little passing historical tidbit, mm-hmm. Israelites are being bad, God punished them, keep going. Even that has its ultimate fulfillment in the true Israel Christ. That's right. Who would be raided, marauded, mm-hmm. right? Sold, as it were, given over to his enemies so that... Right, he did for us what we couldn't do for ourselves, and so you see a connection there to Isaiah, to you know, to the Gospels, to the finished work of Christ, and and all of that is so that the covenant of grace would be fulfilled, and there would no longer be generations rising up who did not know the Lord, and, and that has to be our hope now because I'm going to tell you, I've chaired the theological examining committee for the Nashville Presbytery, the Presbyterian Church in America, for about two decades now, and one of the things I've noticed, even among seminarians graduating, wanting to come into ordained ministry, the relative lack of knowledgeability of just plain old English Bible is shockingly low. Mm-hmm. I'm not talking about Hebrew and Aramaic and Greek. We examine in that. But I'm talking about what we call our English Bible exam and the increase of biblical illiteracy, which it makes so... I mean, the gates of hell tremble because of what y'all do here. Because all you're doing is trying to get out of the way of the Bible, ultimately. That's right. Yes. You're just trying to get out, grease the skids of the yeah. Bible and get out of the way. Yes. That's what I see y'all yeah. doing. We the literally call tremble. these books soldiers. Send them into houses. Yeah, yeah. Get this scripture into get it people's in there. hands. Open get it in them up. there. Yeah. Yeah, because so that we can, we can rescue a generation yeah. out of not knowing yeah. the Lord. Because that knowing is not just conceptual or propositional, though it certainly is conceptual and propositional, full of propositional truth. But that knowing of the Lord is covenantal knowing. Yeah. Yada in Hebrew, gnosko in Greek. It is covenantal, intimate, relational knowing. And for people not to 
covenantally intimately know the Lord, there is just isn't hope. Yeah, that's right. Okay, friends, if you know me, you know that I love to cook. In fact, pre-pandemic, I had some of the girls from the office over to teach them how to prepare every course of a Thanksgiving dinner. It is fun to gather fresh ingredients and great people and enjoy a delicious meal together. But one thing I always tell the girls from the office is, if you're really serious about cooking amazing meals, the right tools make all the difference. That's where Made In comes in. They're a professional quality cookware and knife company, and they source the finest materials and they partner with renowned craftsmen to make premium kitchen tools available directly to you, no middleman. Plus, Made In products are made to last and they offer a lifetime guarantee. They have more than 28,000 five-star reviews and their products are used by some of the world's best chefs at Michelin star restaurants all over the world. I got to try the nonstick frying pan and I loved it. It heats everything really evenly, it's super easy to clean, and I can already tell it's going to last. Right now, Made In is offering listeners 15% off your first order with promo code TRUTH. This is the best discount available anywhere online for Made In products. So go to madeincookware.com slash truth and use promo code TRUTH for 15% off your first order. That's M-A-D-E-I-N cookware.com slash truth. Use promo code TRUTH. Made In, better cookware for better meals. If our goal every time we end one of these days is to go like, all right, this key verse, if it says in those days there was no king in Israel, everyone did whatever seemed right to him. If you hear that, you say book of Judges, I hope that our hope is that now our listeners and our readers are going to go, okay, thank you for drawing those connections for us, David, because we, okay, now we can get this grasp of not only what's happening in Judges, but how it interconnects all over the place with the whole of Scripture, to the point that when we get to Ruth, I mean, in Ruth chapter 1, verse 1, the sentence is, during the time of the judges. All right, we've got our first connection right there. We know that this is actually happening during the time of the judges, right? Yeah, exactly. And the beautiful thing about that is the book of Ruth tells us that though there was no king in Israel and everybody was doing what was right in their own eyes, the triune God was not, as it were, sitting on the edge of the throne Mm -mm worrying, fretting, right. oh, there's no king. Everybody's doing what's right. And they're mm-hmm. honest, oh, there's no king. We'll take care of that. Right. There will be a king. But it's going to take this story of grace and mercy about a woman who could have just been discarded and utterly unknown, utterly unremembered. There is going to be a king in Israel, and I'm going to use this Moabitess mm-hmm. to bring that king to center stage. So again, remember what I said earlier on, all of these books are about the protection of the seed motif. So, that, of course, when you get to the genealogy in Matthew, you have Obed, who is the son of this unsuspecting young lady here, this widowed woman. Obed becomes the father of Jesse. Jesse becomes the father of David. Suddenly, the Legos are coming together. Right. Yep. And yep. they're starting to take shape, right? Yeah. 
Right. So even, I mean, during the time of the judges, that God is preserving his covenant. And we also can't miss that Boaz is the son of Rahab, right. who God preserved in the book of Joshua. Yeah. Yes. So, I mean, even pre-judges, we get to hear about Boaz. We don't hear about Boaz in Joshua, but we hear about Rahab, right. his mom. Right, right, right. Right? Exactly. God's will, his covenant, it cannot be thwarted. It cannot be thwarted. It cannot be thwarted. And so that's why we can read the book of Judges and not lose heart. Yeah. Goodness gracious. Think about this. If judges, they're trying to be their own kings, they're trying to be their own gods, yeah. do what is right in their own eyes. Well, if in Genesis, that's what Adam and Eve were doing, they were going to be their own gods. God's immediate response to that was 315, the seed will crush the serpent's head. And then as you look at, at Genesis 321 and following, what do you have but the truth that for that seed to come and crush the serpent's head, it was going to require the shedding of blood because Adam and Eve, right? God basically said, okay, give me your little fig leaf unitards here. I'm going to cover you with garments of skin. That means blood had to be shed. Yeah. And by the time you get, of That's course, right. to judges and, you know, you, you just learn to read these things through the lens of Christ and it, and suddenly things start to cohere mm-hmm. in this beautiful way. And you realize, oh, wait a second, this is not just a disparate collection of, you know, books edited by committees of goat herders over centuries. There is a divine organic unity because it is the one word of the one Holy Spirit. And so he's just basically leaving us these little Easter eggs all right. along the way to discover, yep. like you yeah. just mentioned there with, with Boaz and Rahab or with, you know, with Ruth and Obed and Jesse and David and Christ. There's just Easter eggs all along yeah. the way. Yeah. And so our key verse for Ruth is, the women said to Naomi, blessed be the name of the Lord who has not left you without a family redeemer today. May his name become well known in Israel, which is a prophecy. Mm-hmm. But also, I mean, just talk to us for a minute, David, about this family redeemer concept to have Boaz. You talked about how, you know, Joshua is an archetype of Christ, right? Mm-hmm. How, what does that family redeemer look like for Boaz and how is that kind of a precursor to Christ. Yeah, so in Israelite culture, of course, if a woman was widowed, the deceased husband's brother, of course, was to take her in and take care of her. And of course, here you have a lot of interesting situations. You have a woman who's a Moabitess, right? Right. Boaz comes along heroically and, you know, basically, you know, as it were, spreads his wing over her and and draws her in. And so here you have Naomi, who was going to be left destitute. Right. right. Blessed be the Lord, Yahweh, who has not left you without a family redeemer today. And again, it's that idea of God's commitment to presence, mediation, being a, a mediator, and not leaving his people destitute. And then when they say, may his name become well-known in Israel, this was not just that Boaz's name would become well-known in Israel but that the name of his offspring, mm-hmm. not even just David, but the true Davidic king, Christ. And so this is one of those things that's picked up so often, just kind of as a little side note here, when you read the New Testament so often, you know, say when Paul was collecting, you know, you see this in Second Corinthians, one of Paul's real passions was collecting money for the widows and the oppressed in Jerusalem, i.e. ethnically Jewish Christians back in Jerusalem, who were following Christ, but because of that, their businesses were being boycotted, they were being rejected, basically funerals being held for them as though they were dead, hmm. and particularly widows, because if you were a widow, ethnically Jewish, who had who had followed Christ, your husband died, 
that kinsman redeemer that should have taken you in, you're dead to them. Mm-hmm. And so Paul's trying to get, does that make sense? Yeah. And yeah. so back here, there is the promise that there will be a kinsman redeemer for those who are outcast and oppressed. It is ultimately Christ. But even on a real practical level, here you have in the church, in the time of the New Testament, when there were Jewish widows who were followers of Christ, there was still someone who was going to care for them, and that was the church of Christ, mm-hmm. right? Taking them in, being their provision, yeah. being their, their covering. So this Boaz kinsman redeemer, he's behaving then as now the church is expected to We behave. really should, yeah. I right? mean, so there's an ecclesiastical connection here yeah. okay. about the way that the church, the body of Christ, is to function in that way, which is why James says... True religion is this. Yeah. yeah. See, James, a very Jewish man, hmm. when he said true religion is this, take care of widows and orphans, he was saying that, church, there are going to be widows and orphans who will have no family redeemer. Get to it. Be the Careful. church. Be the kinsman redeemer under Christ, the true kinsman redeemer who has hmm. been that for all of us, you see. I love that. And then in that day 10 reading, we also get the Matthew genealogy. You mentioned genealogies. Mm -hmm. Right. And I think that it's funny because, of course, growing up, you're like, ah, genealogies. This is time consuming and useless. But like not only there's two, at least two, two of many very important uses of genealogies in Scripture. One, of course, is just historicity, like just tracking like what is happening Mm -hmm. and knowing. But I think that there is so much to be revealed about the heart and character of God in a genealogy, like to be reading that Matthew 1 genealogy. And like we said, seeing Rahab, which was who was not of the house of Israel, seeing Ruth, seeing his people grafted in who were um, worthless, you know, in the eyes of worthless is the wrong word to say, but dismissed, dismissed, right, had nothing to offer. And but they were grafted in. Yeah, it could potentially discredit your gospel, Matthew, right? Because you're writing to not exclusively, but Right. We might say a predominantly Jewish audience. That's why he begins with Abraham. Yeah. Whereas Luke, writing to a predominantly, you know, Gentile audience, begins with Adam. But he's beginning with Abraham here. And you say, okay, look, you're wanting to impress a Jewish people with the messianic reality of Christ. The last thing in the world you ought to do is stick a prostitute in there. Right. So it shows the right. heart of God, the genealogies. Mm-hmm. But there's also an apologetic function, meaning this. When people say that the Bible is just a spin document, yeah. Kind of fabricated, written as a legend to sort of prop up this idea of a cosmic Christ. It's like, well, if it's just a spin document, there are details you're going to leave out. You're not going to stick a prostitute in the genealogy of the main protagonist of the story. You're not going to have a Samaritan woman, right. especially a Samaritan woman like that Samaritan woman in John 4, be the first evangelist to Samaria, you're not going to have a woman who had had demons cast out of her like Mary Magdalene be the first one to witness the risen Christ and go back and tell the disciples, right? And I love what your heart of all says, why her? You know, why not begin with some really right. upstanding official? Give credibility Give here. credibility to the story. And yeah. I love what your heart of says, it was Mary because she needed him first and needed him most. And yet she's the one who goes and becomes the first evangelist of the resurrected Christ and as you know, in that day and age, women, their, their testimony. testimony was, yeah. it was pointless. So there's an apologetic function. And I love that. And you're I love right, pointing you're out right. People, I like that. If this is just a spin document, there are going to be details that wouldn't be here, yeah. like a prostitute in mm-hmm. the mix. Yep. And that pulling in from the margins, God keeps doing that. He mm-hmm. keeps pulling us in, mm-hmm. right? From the margins, we That's get right. Titus 2, 11 through 14 in this day's reading. Such a good landing place for this reading day. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, 
instructing us to deny godlessness and worldly lusts and to live in a sensible, righteous, and godly way in the present age while we wait for the blessed hope, Mm. the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Mm -hmm. He gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to cleanse for himself a people for his own possession, eager to do good works. That passage right there, Titus is one of those sort of slender sliver of an epistle toward the end <laughs> yep. of the New Testament. That if you get going too fast, you just go right by it. Yep. But that passage there is pregnant with so much doctrinal mm-hmm. truth, right? The grace of God brings salvation. So there's justification. There's the indicative. And that justification, getting back to Genesis 12 to 17, yeah. the covenant is for all peoples, all people groups, right? And then you have sanctification, Grace not only justifies, it sanctifies, teaches us to say no ungodliness and live righteous lives. So you have the indicative of the gospel, the imperative of the gospel, but it's covenantal, and it's for every tribe, tongue, and nation that that seed is going to secure. And that brings the whole Old Testament. I mean, even there, you see the whole Old Testament being brought together by that phrase, bringing salvation for all peoples. And that's not universalism, that every man, woman, boy, and girl ever has is or will live will be saved, but that every tribe, tongue, and nation, all peoples... Right. Yes. Will be in other words, the church is not a good old boys club. This is for all peoples. Mm-hmm. But then what are we waiting for? The appearing of the glory, the doxa, the radiance mm. in the Greek, the kavod in Hebrew, the weightiness in the Greek, the radiance, the, the weightiness and the radiance of Jesus himself is going to show up and we're going to be, oh, look at the weightiness and radiance. Huh, there is a king in Israel after all, you know. <laughs> uh, and he's going to redeem us from what? Lawlessness the kind of lawlessness that was cyclical in the book of Judges, yep. mm-hmm. and cleanse for himself a people for his own possession, just like Naomi and Ruth were made his own possession, eager to do good works. Not eager to do good works to earn our salvation, that's given, yep. but to evidence our salvation. right? Not to merit our salvation, but to manifest. Yeah. Not to deserve, but to demonstrate our salvation. There's just so much in that one passage. Draws in on everything we've been talking about, in order for Titus to be able to make that statement with validity. And yeah. there it is. I mean, that was away. a sermon. Right. Right there. Yeah. Like it's, yeah, there's Titus so Titus appreciates that he got more airtime than he expected to get today. <laughs> like I love that we sat for a minute in that Titus passage. Yeah. That was wor- that was oh, time well yeah, spent yeah. to me. So we have two more books of the Bible uh-huh. for this week. First and second Samuel, which mm. you're tempted to lump them together, but, and you know, a lot is happening in that cohesive story. But in first Samuel... Something is happening, very significant. And then again in Second Samuel, can you kind of give us, David, the overview? I mean, we've come from Joshua. We've gone to the Judges period. Mm-hmm. And Ruth, which was happening in the period of the Judges, now what? Yeah, so we are following this reality, this cyclical reality of rebellion and repentance, rebellion and repentance, rebellion and repentance. There was no king in Israel. But now Israel wants a king. They're demanding a king. We need a king. You know, get all this chaos under control. We want to be, like be like everybody like the, else. We want to be like everybody else. Everybody else has kings. We need a king too. This well, is the argument are, my kids use about phones. Yes. Yeah, everybody else has one. Everybody else has one, everybody everybody has one, one. right? <laughs> and then the chaos begins. That's right. 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 Exactly. And they give them the phone, and then the chaos begins. So Israel wanted a king. Why? Because they had this righteous desire for order and accountability to the law of God. No. Other nations were rising in prominence and power because they had kings. Mm -hmm. If we're going to catch up, we better get us a king real quickly. 
And so they they chose a king. And I think one of the things that is important, maybe at 30,000 feet to look down on 1 Samuel, say, okay, the people of God who have, in effect, rejected the Lord as king, what now are they going to be looking for in a king? Mm -hmm. And they found one in Saul who was tall and handsome and impressive and a train wreck. Yeah. And then you see the Lord saying, okay, I am committed to you having a king, but it's going to be the king of my choosing, ultimately Jesus, but Jesus is going to be the king that is the seed, and I'm protecting that seed motif through a king that I'm going to give to you that is like the polar opposite of what you want in a king. He's not tall and good-looking and imposing Mm -hmm. and impressive. In fact, he's the runt of the litter. Yeah, not even worth bringing out. Yeah, exactly. I mean, leave so, him in the field. Yeah, exactly. Let him shepherd the sheep, but we're going to have to have somebody more impressive than than him. But then, of course, you get to chapter seventeen and the little what we think is just the children's Sunday school story of David and Goliath. Yeah. And okay, wait a second. The seed, temple, presence, God's commitment to putting a king on the throne of His own choosing, and Jesse, who is the son of remember Obed, mm-hmm. Obed. Jesse, the father, sends his son. Does that sound familiar? The father sends the son. Where? To the battlefield because the people of God have an enemy they can't defeat. Of course, the Philistine giant is out there taunting the people of God, taunting the name of God. And, of course, as you know, the story goes, this little unsuspecting, nobody would, I mean, he's not very presidential. Nobody's going to vote for this little runt. He comes on the scene, sent by the Father, sent by the Father for what? To take care of his own. Does that Hmm. not sound like John 1? Yeah. Came to his own, right? Of course, his own, his own brother had to be looking at him thinking, oh, this kid's not going to be able to do anything. In fact, they put armor on him. He can't wear it. Too too little for the armor. (laughs) But then he goes out and he, he does battle against the enemy of God's people. Of course, as you know, we hear that story growing up in Sunday school, and we think the moral of that little fable, mm-hmm. David and Goliath, is face your giants. That's right. Right? Just That's like what Joshua we want to take away. Be yeah. strong and courageous. You can Be do strong it. and courageous when you got something big in front of you. You got what it takes. The point of Joshua is, so no, we don't have what it takes. you'll score great on the SATs. I can't, right? I, can't, right. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I can't be strong and courageous. Yeah. I don't have what it takes to face my giants. I'm not David. We are the people of Israel cowering in the corner. That's right. Who can't face Goliath. And then, of course, David comes out, and what does he do? He crushes him in the head. And so I think when we come to 1 Samuel, we have to say, okay, wait. Yeah, they wanted a king for really all the wrong reasons. The Lord said, okay, I'm going to give you what you want, but I'm going to give you what you want in preparation for what you need. And it is the Davidic king that I have been tending his lineage the whole way. I've not been thrown off course, not even once. And even in the midst of your faithlessness, I have not given up faithfulness to you and to my covenant because I made a promise to Abraham. I made a promise back in 315 of a seed will crush the serpent's head. And I carried that and expanded that further on a promise to Abraham, kept that promise to and through Joshua, kept that promise even through the cacophony that is the book of of Judges, kept that prophecy through this little side story of this. Yeah. Helpless couple of women, Ruth and Naomi, right? You see what's going on here. So I think when we see first Samuel, it feels like a side story, but it's like the story. Like it's it's the, yeah. Yeah, it's a side story and it's the story. Yeah. And what Israel thought was the story. We have a king. Right. We now have Saul. We're going to be like the other nations. God's like, yeah, that's actually the side story. The story 
is this little runt that I'm going to send. It's happening here. Yeah. yeah. And then, of course, Saul is going to be chasing David all over the place and out of jealousy and hatred and so forth. Yeah. Not boring books of the Bible, I First mean, and Second Samuel. Not lest you think that the Old <laughs> Testament is well, and and we we talked about this again when we were reading Mark. I think that I had like gone down a little rabbit trail and realized like, wait a minute, three out of the four Gospels, either the first or second thing that Jesus, like his first or second words in three out of the four Gospels, is it is written. It is written. He's saying that what happened in the Old Testament. I'm the fulfillment of it. Yeah, yeah. It's just the intertwining of this shows that the Bible is this multi-layered tapestry. And the minute you start tracing hmm. one thread and its design, you could just lose yourself. And losing yourself yeah. in this is just a beautiful thing. Of course, when you go over to Second Samuel, yeah. then you start to realize that David, yeah. though God's chosen king, is nonetheless possessed of feet of clay, right? And I think one of the beautiful things about David is that he is not only a type of Christ, but he shows Israel what it means to fall and repent and be restored. He shows Israel that the condemnation of sin will not be upon us, but the consequences of sin will, not for our punishment, but for ultimately you know, our progress and sanctification. And so you know, David gives us things like Psalm 51 yeah. and teaches us how to repent, or he gives us Psalm 23, where at the very end, he says what is a very experienced reality, mm-hmm. especially in Second Samuel, something that he's experienced mm-hmm. for sure uh, by Second Samuel is where he says, surely goodness and mercy shall... Follow what? me. It's the yeah. presence of God. Yeah. yeah, the presence of God. But the beautiful thing about the presence of God there, surely goodness and chesed in the Hebrew mm. can be translated grace. Surely goodness and chesed shall, our translation say follow, the Hebrew word is yirad funi. It's from the Hebrew root radaf. Every time David uses some form of the word radaf in the Hebrew, it's always of Saul chasing him, hounding him, mm. hunting him down, chasing him. Pursuit. So, yeah, yeah. Pursuit. So what is he saying here in Psalm 23, 6? Surely goodness and grace will be on the chase all the days of my life. And I think by the time we read 2 Samuel, we know that David is a man who desperately needed the grace of God to be on the chase in his life. I think of that verse and how my daughter, who's 17 now, and but she used to think it was really, really fun when she was a little bitty when I'd get home, and she would squeal that I was in daddy's home, and I would start chasing her around the house, <laughs> and she loved for me to chase her, but what she loved most was when I'd speed up and I'd scoop her up. Mm. Yeah. And I think what you have in Psalm 23, 6, you know, David knew his need of the... He knew what it was like to be chased, pursued by Saul's hatred, but he also knew what it meant to be chased by grace. And I think we don't understand David's need for that apart from realizing his brokenness and fallenness that's kind of on full display in yeah. First and Second Samuel, really. Yeah. The Bible is not boring. No, it is not. I, I mean, this is... I am so excited for our listeners because you have such a good week of reading ahead of you. I mean, it's let this just whet your appetite to read the Word of God for yourself. Just get excited about what you have in the five books ahead of you. And I hope that this—I mean, we, like I said, we prayed before we hit record, and our prayer was that this would make you want God and make you Mm. want Scripture. And I hope that—I mean, David, this conversation was so— Fine. Yeah, it's done that for me. I it, mean, it, it, yeah, this conversation exactly. has done that for me. I yeah. want to 
you know, I want to go straight back and just keep reading. <laughs> um, and just the evidence of, I was just looking as you were describing that, the relationship with David and, and the Lord. Um, I was looking at Second Samuel 7, 15, but my faithful love will never leave him mm. wow. as it did when I removed it from Saul, when mm-hmm. I removed it from before you. Your house and kingdom will endure before me forever, and your throne will be established forever. But that my faithful love will never leave him. That's It feels like the theme of what we've been talking about you know, from starting with Joshua. That's right. And then coming all the way through now into David's story, it's just God's faithful love, that pursuit. Yeah. That pursuit yeah. and his mm-hmm. faithfulness. He doesn't peace out on us. You know, one of my favorite benedictions is First Thessalonians five, twenty three and twenty four. Now may the God of peace sanctify you completely. Mm. And may your whole spirit, soul, and body be kept blameless at the coming of Christ Jesus. Mm-hmm. He who calls you is what? Faithful. That's right. And I love the next part. He will surely do it. In some ways, these books that we've looked at here are God reminding us with every single book, I'm surely going to do it. I'm yep. surely yeah. going to do it. Yep. Check out my faithfulness. Right. Yes. I'm surely going to do this. I'm surely going to keep you and present you faultless through the life and the marauding and the selling and the suffering of this seed mm-hmm. who is my chosen king. I'm surely going to do this for you, and you're going to be blameless, despite your cacophony of, mm. you know, <laughs> constant cycle of rebelling and making deals with God and negotiating with God and making promises and blowing it. I'm going to present you faultless and blameless. I'm surely going to do it. Amen. Let it be so. I Amen. mean, this is beautiful. Thank you so much, David, for coming. And my goodness, can you come back soon? <laughs> Listen, I'm telling you, y'all, anytime you don't understand. What an honor this is for me to be here. I meant it when I said the gates of hell tremble because of She Reads, He Reads, right? I mean, my own son doing He Reads Mm. back in the day when he was with college now, but the youth group did He Reads, and he got introduced to it on the app and everything. I'm thinking, this is, look, here's the thing. Jesus loves you, and I promise you the devil hates you for what you're doing, <laughs> right? But greater is he who is in you than he who is in the world, That's right? right. Yeah. Yeah. You have no idea what a privilege it is for me to be sitting here with you. I'm I'm such a fan, and oh. uh, well, this, is, this is awesome. You I've have, been telling people, hey, guess where I'm going? Oh, <laughs> well, you have poured into this conversation and into our community through this conversation. We're really, really thankful. Yeah. I'm going to have to replay it a couple of times. Yeah. I'm excited to re-listen to it. This is awesome. Yeah. Friends, keep going. Keep reading. Come back next week. We have our friend Liz Curtis Higgs is going to be here next week. If you do not know Liz, you are in for a treat. Yes. And then the week after that, our dear Jenny Owens will be here. Yeah. And we're just going to keep going, y'all. Yeah, that's right. And I cannot tell you how excited I am. I know I already did. But just don't let the episode today feed you for this week. Let it make you hungry. That is what I want. I want it to make you hungry to open, be a woman or man in the Word of God every day this week. Let this episode wet, not satisfy your appetite. Y'all, come back though next week for that next episode with Liz Curtis Higgs. And until next week, David, what do we tell our friends? Keep opening your Bibles. Bibles.